This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part two of a three-part series spotlighting the Langley and Benack Construction Group. The series is hosted by Clinton Butler. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Hello, uh, this is Clinton Butler. And for those of you who aren't P1s to this podcast series already, uh, I am a shareholder with the law firm of Langley and Manat, and I have been charged with hosting a series of podcasts that uh, illuminate the different areas of practice that we engage in here at Langley Benack. Uh, so far, we've done a podcast series on oil and gas, which is kind of my area of expertise. Uh, we've done one on bankruptcy, which I knew little to nothing about. And now we're kind of in the Goldilocks zone of an area of law that I know just enough to be dangerous about. So I thought it'd be a good idea for my benefit and for everybody else's benefit that uh, we do a podcast series on construction law. Um, at some point in our lives, most of us are going to encounter some sort of uh, either a house construction or commercial construction. We're, all, we're most likely at some point in our lives going to uh, encounter some sort of construction issue. And so this podcast is going to center around the specialist in construction law that we have here at, uh, at Langley and Banach. And today's episode will feature a, a young attorney with our firm, good friend of mine, a uh, guy by the name of Thomas Littlebridge. Thomas, good morning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, good morning, Clinton. Um, sure, yeah, my name's Thomas Littlebridge. I'm from San Antonio. I went to law school here at St. Mary's um, and I started clerking with Langley and Banach during law school. Uh, for a guy named Bill Summers, who practices only construction litigation here. Um, and he's been my mentor. The, the godfather but, of construction law in the state of Texas. Exactly. Yeah, really in the state, in the whole state. Um, and, you know, if he ever comes on this podcast, I'm sure you can cry out all his credentials from him. Um, but if, if we just settled on Bill's credentials, that would be a full podcast in and of itself. So we'll <laughs> We'll have to ask him to pare it down, but yeah, Bill will be on our uh, our third episode. We're gonna we're gonna end strong with Bill. Okay, good, good. So um, I'm an associate here at Langley and Benack, and probably 95 to 98 percent of the stuff I do is construction related, um, and so that's what I do here. 
great. And tell me, how did, you know, other than just clerking, what, what got you into the construction law field? You know, what we all have different paths that we travel. You know, the way I got to be an oil and gas lawyer uh, is the typical way most people do. You work nine years as a DA and then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you're an oil and gas lawyer. Uh, you know, and so everybody's got their own their own unique story as to how they ended up where they're at. How did you end up um, becoming one of the uh, construction litigators here at Langley Manat? Yeah, well, I was not in the construction industry before I went to law school. Um, and when I got into law school, I was right out of undergrad and I was really looking for an area um, that was just going to continue, you know, and basically until the end of time. Um, there are a couple legal industries like that. Um, and construction, I found the niche there because, for one, I really like the clientele. Um, and it literally, literally shapes uh, the community that I'm living in. And so I thought that was pretty interesting and, and pretty cool. And I just wanted to be a part of that. Um, even though I'm sitting in an office all day, I'm not doing the actual you know, work with my hands. Well, good deal. Well, you know, what we're going to concentrate on today is kind of some basic level stuff. You know, the way I like to work these podcast, these podcast series is I like to kind of ramp them up. You know, the first, uh, the first podcast in any series, I want it to be pretty basic. I want to give this the, uh, the listener who might not be an expert in construction law. I want to give them a good solid base from which to jump off of. And so, you know, with any construction project, the first and foremost item that you're going to be looking at in most cases is going to be the contract, right? Oh, definitely. Um, and so what I thought today we would concentrate on is just the different types of contracts. You know, what is a construction contract? What does it do? What's its function? Uh, what type of con construction contracts are there? And then what sort of issues have arisen in your practice that you could share with us that give us some sort of real world examples of what to do, or in some cases, even better, what not to do. So, you know, let's start off with, you know, let's just let's just build from the very bottom and then we'll get to the top. Tell the audience, you know, what is a basic contract? Uh, and in particular, what what's a what's a construction contract? Yeah, well, um, you know, that's a great starting point. And, you know, to your point earlier, everybody's going to run into some kind of construction project in their life. Um, construction law is a mix really between contract law and real estate. And so there can be um, a contract for the sell, the selling of a piece of property with the building of a, a home or a um, commercial building on that in the same contract. Uh, you can also have separate contracts for the sale of the property um, and a building contract, depending on who the owner is. Uh, if the owner is also the builder, you know, it might come out of one contract. If they're separate, they'll come out of two. Um, there's residential construction contracts and commercial construction contracts. There's remodel contracts. Um, I mean, there are just so many different types that we run into on a daily basis that really to say, what is a construction contract? Um, is a, such a multifaceted question. Um, and does that answer your question? It does. It does. And so, you know, 
I think the key thing I wanted to hit on there is that a construction process, a construction contract can involve real property. It could also not involve real property. Is that right? That's right. And yeah. real property, as we all know, is, is land, you know, and so sometimes, you know, you, you do a, a, a construction contract where you're buying the land that you're going to build on. Sometimes you either already own the land or you're leasing the land or some other sort of, uh, of issue is arising where all you're doing is just constructing for the actual service of putting up the building, right? Yeah, I mean, we have um, two cases that I can think of where we're representing um, a buyer um, who went under contract with the landowner, the, who whatever company it is that owns the dirt. And the guy who owns that company that owns the dirt also owns a building company. Um, and I think I misspoke a second ago, actually. The, the buyer in these two cases is under contract with the building company, um, and but they don't have a contract to buy the land from the landowning company. Uh, if, if that is that making sense? Yeah. And yeah, it so does. they have now gone under contract to build a home on property that's owned by somebody else. Um, and so that's just something that, you know, you really want to be aware of if you're buying a piece of land from a developer who is building uh, your house you need to make sure that you're actually contracting with the owner of the dirt uh, for the sale of the property and not just a construction contract to build the property on somebody else's land that, you know, you're hoping they will sell to you at the end of the project. The um, Can you tell our audience what the AIA and the Texas Association of Builders Independent Contractors what those organizations are and do they, do they have like base, you know, form contracts, you know, sort of like a real estate contract. When you buy a house, there's the, there's the TERC form, which is just kind of your standard uh, real property purchase agreement form. Do those, uh, do those organizations like the TERC, do those organizations have kind of a base agreement that are typically used in construction agreements? Yeah, they do. They're called promulgated form contracts. Um, and of course, they can be redlined um, and changed however you'd like to. But you go online uh, to the American Institute of Architects, the AIA contracts, um, or the Texas Association of Builders, um, independent contractor base agreements, or um, whatever Texas Association of Builders contract form you're looking for. Um, you pay for it, and they update them over time. And after you get it, you... Uh, you know, fill it in with you. Usually you want to hire a lawyer to help you with this because these are extremely long contracts that have been drafted up by um, a number of attorneys and industry experts, and they can be extremely complicated and there's things hidden in there. Um, like for instance, on the AIA contracts, there's going to be a section that says this contract incorporates, and it's going to have like five, five or six bullet points. And it's going to incorporate all these other AIA documents into it. So you can have a 30-page contract that you don't even realize is actually, you know, two to 300 pages because it's incorporating all these other forms in it. Anyway, all that to say, um, these are great resources and starting, starting places. Um, but I would be hesitant to just 
buy an AIA contract and enter into it without having an attorney uh, review it first, especially when the other side is probably going to be doing that. And you're just, you know, signing your name to something that you don't even understand. Um, there are tons of different types of contracts under both of those um, companies. I actually have one of the Texas um, Association of Builders contracts right here in front of me. Um, I have a client. Well, let's get let's let's talk about some basic issues, which is, you know, the first the first issue with any construction contract or any agreement is how much is this going to cost me? You know, what am I going to pay now? Are there different payment structures uh, for construction contracts? And if so, what are those different payment payment procedures? Yeah, um, certainly there's uh, what's called a lump sum, which is probably uh, the most common and most simple to understand um, for someone entering into a contract who really doesn't know construction that well. Um, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a stipulated sum or a fixed amount. Um, for the completion of a scope of work that's defined in the contract. Um, if anything, so basically, is I'm going to build this building for you for a million dollars on the contract, or I'm going to build this building for you for a million dollars. If it costs me 1.1 to do it, then I lose a hundred thousand. If it costs me, you know, seven hundred thousand to do it, then I make three hundred thousand. But I'm going to get a million dollars. You know, come hell or high water. Period. End of story. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. You as the owner, um, you know, you, again, I would consult an attorney and make sure that you're really not getting taken for a ride for this, because like you're saying, you know, even if it costs them half of what it, what the lump sum price is, you're not entering into some kind of profit sharing deal um, with this contractor. They're going to keep all of it. You're not saving any money at the end of the day, just because it ended up being a lot cheaper for that guy. Uh, to build your house. Um, another, and I would think that in a, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in a stipulated sum, you know, you really want to have your specs uh, as a as an owner. You know, if I'm owning this property, I enter into a stipulated sum. I really want to have my specs down to the most minute detail because if there's any leeway in that contract, as to you know, I, I want. I want granite countertops. What well, do you want? Six inch granite granite countertops, or you want two inch granite countertops? And you know, if you leave if you leave that leeway in there in a stipulated sum, well, the contractor is going to do whatever's cheapest because that means he's going to maximize profit, right? Right. Um, so what you're talking about uh, is a section in these contracts called allowances. And what mm -hmm. that's going to do, um, the allowance exhibit to these contracts is going to say, here is my budget or my allowance for um, appliances. And here is how much money I'm willing to spend on counter countertops, um, et cetera. And so you want to, yeah, make sure that all the things that you're buying uh, are within that allowance and that you are not, you know, you can have contract clauses in there that allow you to, um, to, you know, that's what I'm looking for, allow you to approve um, anything that the contractor's buying before they do it um, so that he doesn't do something like, you know, take the cheapest options the whole way through the project and then you're left with this, you know, what you thought was going to be 
um, a spec house, um, and now you've just got all this builder grade material that is, you know, basically the cheapest thing the guy could find. Right. So that's lump sum. Uh, give us the next one. Yeah. What's a cost one, plus? Another really common one is called a cost plus agreement. Um, and there's two types of those that we see all the time. One's just a cost plus and one's a cost plus with a guaranteed maximum price. Um, a cost plus agreement means, um, again, exactly what it sounds like. The builder is going to be charging uh, the owner whatever it costs them to uh, perform the work, whether it's uh, buying the materials at a certain cost, the owner's going to get charged that cost, plus a fee, a uh, pre-negotiated fee, usually somewhere between 15 and 25% um, on top of that. And that is where the builder is seeing his profit. Um, and so, you know, again, if, if he's buying uh, all these countertops, he's going to charge the owner exactly what it cost him to buy them, plus a fee on top of that. Um, and it's going to be the same fee across the board, no matter what material he's buying. And now with those cost plus agreements, as the owner, you need to micromanage those, right? Because, you know, you've got to stay on top of what cost your contractor is assessing against you. Because the more costly this construction project is, the more money the contractor is going to make. So it, it behooves the contractor, you know, as we were just talking, it's the exact opposite of the lump sum where in the lump sum, because he's only getting a million dollars, the contractor wants to buy those two inch granite countertops. But if a cost plus agreement where the more he spends, the more he makes, uh, you're going to be getting those 12 inch countertops, you know, and so you need to uh, you need to really stay on top of and be real clear with your contractor when you're dealing with a cost plus. Is that right? That's right. Um, and that's why whenever uh, an owner comes to us and they say, hey, here's my builder's contract. I need somebody to look it over. Um, and it's a cost plus contract. We're going to insist that we make it a guaranteed maximum price uh, or GMP. And so a cost plus with a guaranteed maximum price contract means, yes, you get to charge me for your cost plus this uh, agreed upon percentage, but it can never go above X amount of money. Um, and that way you are protecting yourself from these ridiculous uh, charges for, for, yeah, the exact, exact opposite of the lump sum problem where you're getting way better material than you actually want, way more expensive material um, than you need. And that, that guaranteed max price, that, that acts as kind of the salary cap, if you will, for how high they can go. And so it basically tells the owner that, yes, you're going to pay cost plus 15 to 20%, but the most you will pay, period, is going to be X amount of dollars, right? Right. Yeah, think of it like the lump sum uh, is basically the contractor taking all the risk. The, the mm -hmm. uh, cost plus is um, a little bit of risk sharing. And then the guaranteed maximum price is to uh, put a little bit more risk on the contractor from the owner's point of view. And, and here, you know, I'll, I'll give a little war story here. We represented a bank that had a series of four different contracts, all of them cost plus uh, with the builder. And 
on the first three contracts, they did zero auditing work. They didn't get any of the receipts. They didn't keep up with any of the invoices. And at the end of the day, they had no idea as to whether or not what they paid was actually correct or not. And the reason why they really had a question on that is because they did keep up with the fourth contract and found out that the, the owner was, or the contractor was way overpricing them and you know had basically defrauded them on the fourth contract. But there's no way they could have proved it on the other three because they never kept up with the auditing procedures and they were subject to a waiver claim on those. And so, you know, that, and that was a, that was a million dollar failure on behalf of that bank uh, for not keeping the, not keeping up with the construction issues. And so if you're going to enter into a cost plus, uh, you need to be aware as an owner that you're going to have to take an active uh, participation stake in the construction of this, you're basically going to have to act as a financial auditor or hire somebody to financially audit uh, audit these receipts and make sure that the contractor's on the up and up with you. Yeah, I think that brings up a great point too. Of um, there, we see all the time where people will come to us in the middle of or at the very end of a construction job, um, and they say, "Hey, look, I didn't know anything about construction when I hired this guy to come." build my house or renovate my house. And now I'm in this, uh, you know, huge problem and this big dispute with the guy. Uh, and I don't know what to do. And then that's the first thing we say, let's see your project file. Um, you know, how, how much have you paid him? Uh, and sometimes that question can be difficult to answer when you don't even know, um, what you're writing checks for. I mean, you need to be making as an owner, you need to make sure you get line item, um, invoices and purchase orders from these builders so you know exactly what your money is going towards when they just come to you and say hey um i need another fifteen thousand dollars otherwise you know i can't continue working you tell them i'm not going to pay you that until you send me a line item list of exactly what you need that money for um and i think you know there's it's just sad that a lot of people get in over their head halfway through a construction project and they don't even know what they've paid for Yep. So moving on a little bit, let's talk some about um, sort of the, the issues you find in these construction uh, law cases, you know, one of which is, you know, when does acceptance of work occur and what, what is acceptance of work? When does it occur? What is the what's material about, you know, acceptance of work? Well, it can come from a couple different parties. You can have um, the owner accepting the work from the general contractor. Um, and when I say general contractor's work, what I really mean is anything they've done, if they have self-performed any of the work. But really what I'm talking about is all their, their subcontractor's work um, has been accepted by the owner. Um, because the way that these projects usually work is the owner hires the general contractor. The general contractor acts as, um, you know, basically a supervisor over the whole deal. And they manage and select which subcontractors are going to come on the job uh, and perform all the work. And so when an owner is accepting uh, the general contractor's work, there should be something in the contract, if it's a well-written contract, um, that says, you know, upon final payment, 
we are accepting all the work done. Um, and there might be some punch list stuff left over at the end, but for the most part, it's a substantially complete project. Um, and there, the Texas property code requires, um, retainage to be withheld on every job. So even if the contract doesn't say it in there, the owner is required to withhold 10% uh, of the contract price up until 30 days after um, completion. So once that final payment is made, the owner is saying, hey, I've accepted all your work. Um, one issue we see when we're representing subcontractors is the general contractor accepting the subs work uh, but then they come back and say, oh, you know what, never mind. Uh, we need you to come back out to the job and do this or that. Um, and then the subs saying, hey, look, you know, I've already moved all my uh, machinery to another job site because you guys told me that this was all finished. And now you need me to come back. Um, well, I'm going to need, you know, remobilization costs to transport all these machines back to the job um, and, you know, if there's a dispute about whether the work should have been done, um, whether the work that was done fell within the original scope or not, there could be additional charges from the subcontractor. Uh, but guess who's going to get the bill for all that? It's going to be the owner. Uh, the general contractor might front the money. Um, I wouldn't recommend doing that to my clients. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they might just say, oh, man, we're really in a bind. We're coming up on a delay. Uh, we've really got to get this thing moving. So they'll just pay the sub um, and or just tell the sub, hey, don't worry about it. We'll get you paid. And then the owner gets the bill and they're like, no, I'm not paying for all this extra stuff. So the acceptance of work issue can be critical um, in you know your final billing. And, you know. You, you hit on it there, and you, you gave me a great little leeway here, and I appreciate that. Uh, we're working on a telecon, telepathic wavelength here. But we're talking about the different parties involved here. We've got the owner, we've got the con, general contractor, and then we've got the subcontractors, right? Talk about the role of the general contractor, his relationship to the owner, and then talk to us about the roles of the subcontractors and their relationships to the owner and the general and, you know, how that, how that kind of chain works. Yeah. Great. Uh, great point. The owner uh, will enter into a contract with the general contractor, um, sometimes called an original contractor. And once you do that, there's a legal term called privity of contract. And so they have privity of contract together. Um, in turn, the general contractor, is going to go hire the subs. Um, you know, typically it's the people that he works with regularly and likes to work with. So he'll have, you know, might he might even have a standard form contract with those guys that he just uses on all of his jobs or some kind of master service agreement with those guys where he says, you know, come work for me on any of these jobs. Um, so all that to say the owners have no privity of contract with the subcontractors. They just have privity of contractor with privity of contract with the general. And then the general has privity of contract with the subs. That what does that be, mean? Privity of contract. Uh, that just means they have entered into a contractual relationship uh, with one another and they have rights under those contracts in case there is a dispute uh, to go after each other. So and, if I'm, if I'm the owner, and let's say my the tile subcontractor 
really screws up the tile. Can I, as the owner, sue on, sue the subcontractor for that that failure to live up to the contract specifications on how they're going to deal with the tile? Uh, no, you can't. You you have no breach of contract claim against the subcontractor because you have no privity of contract with that sub. So, so what do I have to do then as the owner? You have to go through the subcontractor, or I'm sorry, you have to go through the general contractor to get to the sub. Um, and what that So I sue the general? You have to sue um, or make a claim against the general contractor, and then he is going to be the one um, that has to bring in the subcontractor. And that is a legal theory called indemnity. Um, and most contracts, well, all contracts should have indemnity clauses uh, inside of them. Those are those have been litigated ad nauseum. Uh, there's tons of case law out there about them, and they're extremely important to, to have um, in your subcontracts. If you're coming from the general contractor's point of view, you, you need to have those in every single subcontract that you have. And so kind of going back up the chain, if I'm a subcontractor and the owner hadn't paid the general and therefore the general contractor hadn't paid me, can I as a subcontractor sue the owner? Your right to get to the owner is 100% contingent on lien rights. Um, chapter 53 of the Texas Property Code uh, is the lien statute. And because there's no privity of contract between the owner and the subcontractor, um, you're going to have to lien the owner's property itself uh, in order to get access to them. Otherwise, you are just suing the general contractor for breach uh, for not paying. And then, of course, what, what's the general contractor going to say? Hey, I'm, you know, I'll pay when I get paid. I haven't been paid by the owner. I can't pay you. Um, and so that's when you have to go through uh, the lien procedures in that chapter 53. And that is such a convoluted statute. It's gotten better now. They changed um, a lot of it starting January 1st of this year, 2022, went into effect. Um, but that could be a whole separate podcast on uh, how to lien properly and uh, that, that entire procedure. Gotcha. Okay. So, Let's uh, let's move on. We're going to do some lightning round stuff here where I'm just going to throw some kind of kind of major provisions uh, of your typical contract uh, construction contract at you. Give us kind of a, you know, a thumbnail sketch of what those uh, provisions are, what they mean, how they affect us. And we'll just kind of try to boom, boom, boom this through the rest of the podcast. All right. Sounds good. Lightning. So what's the difference? What's the difference between a material breach and an immaterial breach? A material breach is one that either part, whoever doesn't commit the material breach can terminate the contract upon uh, the other party's material <laughs> breach. Um, an immaterial breach means you can't terminate the contract, but you can go, you can still sue for breach of contract and you're just going after money damages at that time. Uh, of course, if there's a material breach, you can sue for money damages as well, but you can also just terminate the contract. Um, and that's all going to be contingent upon the contractual language. Um, 
you know, it, you can put in any, whatever clause you want. This is a material term of this contract. If it is breached, um, you know, the non-breaching party can terminate based on the termination clause in the contract. Um, so that's the difference there. Okay. Uh, next one. Time is of the essence. Yeah, that's just some magic language um, that you're going to want to throw in, especially on the uh, scheduling part of it, where you know you're going to say this needs to be uh, this building needs to be substantially complete uh, on or before whatever date, um, and then you have to have the magic language in there. This clause uh, or time is of the essence uh, relating to this clause. And what that's going to do is automatically make it a material clause um, so that you can terminate the contract if it's not uh, followed up with. A lot of times we see that um, in closing documents um, where, you know, closing, closing and funding must occur on or before this date. Time is of the essence. Well, if it doesn't, that uh, non-breaching party can terminate the contract. Next one. What's a change order? A change order um, is when when the scope of work on a project changes um, and somebody runs into an unforeseen problem and they have to increase either the time it's going to take to complete the job or they have to increase the amount um, or the sum of the contract price, uh, they need to issue a change order. Um, these really need to have their own clause in a contract. Um, preferably, it would say something like, only upon express written condition from the owner um, are change orders effective. Um, they're going to, uh, sorry about that. Um, they're going to have to be written and signed by both parties and lay out what has changed um, what conditions have changed and how much time or how much money uh, is how much more time and how much more money is going to be needed uh, in order to reach the substantial completion of the project. What is an arbitration clause and what generally is arbitration? Uh, so think of arbitration as a sister to litigation. Uh, litigation's in a courtroom and arbitration is before um, an arbitrator or arbitrators. Uh, there is the American Arbitration Association, which is probably the most commonly seen uh, arbitration forum. And what that is, is a supposed to be a more expedient um, pathway to a resolution for a dispute. Um, the, the actually pretty interesting anecdote here, um, the Arbitration was invented um, a long time ago for maritime cases because back in the day they would go to uh, they would have lawsuits over these maritime claims and there was so much lingo um, that you know these ship captains would use and nobody would know what they were talking about so they couldn't have jury trials and they really couldn't even have bench trials to the judge because it was so confusing and these trials would take forever. So they would get uh, these experts in the industry to hear these cases and act as the judges, even if they weren't actual judges. Um, and that has evolved now to so many different industries 
um, and construction is one that is it's highly prevalent in. Um, and so you can be you can find yourself, you know, doing your trial in front of um, a construction expert or um, a lawyer who's practiced construction law his whole career or a former judge. But you're not going to be in the courtroom. You're going to be in front of these uh, this arbitrator or this panel of arbitrators. Um, and it's just supposed to be a cheaper, quicker way to get things resolved, um, especially in, in certain industries where there might be some really niche areas um, and some terminology that is just a little more complicated than normal. Gotcha. So it's basically instead of having a jury of 12 folks from Kmart decide it, we're going to have an expert in the area of construction law make a decision, correct? Exactly. Gotcha. Um, consequential damages and consequential damages waivers. Yeah, these are super important and these are hidden and tucked away in these AIA contracts, um, which is another reason why you really are going to want a, a lawyer to look at these things if someone presents you with one. Um, consequential damages are damages that are outside um, of you know the actual damages incurred. So, for, okay, think about it this way. If, if you have a construction defect claim and there's all these problems with this building that you've just built, let's say it's a doctor's office, um, and you can't, you, you're going to have to pay someone to come in and fix everything. And it's going to take, you know, seven more months than what you had anticipated. And you're, you have patients lined up. Uh, they started making doctor's appointments six months ago. Um, well, now all of a sudden they can't come to you. Uh, or let's say you have to go rent out another space while your office is finished being built. Those damages uh, that you have incurred now by renting out somewhere else or by losing the profits um, from these appointments that you couldn't have, those are all called consequential damages. Um, and so you'll see in all, a lot of these contracts, it'll say the owner is waiving any right to consequential damages. Um, or you'll see one that says, in no instance can there be any damages for delays, uh, which are going to be the same results. You know, if, if a building isn't finished on time and it's an apartment building and you're planning on leasing it out and it's a year delayed, you're missing out on a year of rent that you would have been making. Um, and so if there's that no damages for delay language or a waiver of consequential damages, you might not be able to incur anything um, or you might not be able to recover anything. All right. Um, what's a liquidated damages clause? Um, liquidated damages uh, is one of those terms that a lot of people have heard and not a lot of people understand. Um, in Texas, there, it's been heavily litigated, um, and actually as recently as 2020, um, there's a Supreme Court case uh, directly on point, and it, it really lays out well what they are and how to use them. Um, and here's what they are. They are a forecast for anticipated damages in the event somebody defaults or the project is delayed um, or something like that. So let me give you an example. Um, let's say, let's go with the delay claim. Um, you know, let's say there's uh, an apartment complex getting built and it's six months delayed. 
and there's a liquidated damages clause in there that says in the event of a delay um, or in the event the project's not substantially complete on uh, by X date, every day that it goes on after that substantial completion date, you are going to be liable for $75 a day uh, or however much you want. You can put in there $1,000 a day. Um, so it is a forecast of what you think your damages are going to be um, if something isn't done on time under a contract. Um, they can be extremely difficult to draft because the Texas Supreme Court um, has a really detailed explanation as to how they have to um, come to a number per day that these liquidated damages are going to uh, be charged. Um, you, it's, it's very clear under Texas law that you can't have a penalty uh, in a contract. You can't say, well, these are going to be, you know, per day, this is a penalty. It needs to be per day, this is how much it's costing me uh, because of your delay. And so you have to put in the contract, um, you know, that this estimated um, delay clause, the delay cost is difficult to estimate. Um, you have to say that here's, you know, this is a reasonable forecast of what it is uh, and why. And then the courts will look at both of those and they're going to do what's called a second look at that stage where they look at the actual damages incurred and they're going to make sure that whatever your reasonable forecast was is just that. But it was an actual reasonable forecast uh, of what your actual damages are. Thomas, can you explain to uh, to everybody what a force majeure is, and then kind of kind of tie that into you know the ultimate force majeure that we just went through the last couple of years, which was the pandemic. Yeah, force majeure clause, um, also commonly known as an act of God clause, is going to be any kind of um, any kind of event that is totally outside of the control of either contracting party. Um, for instance, a hurricane, um, a pandemic. Um, sometimes it can even be a strike or a government shutdown. Um, it, it, you know, the more detailed your force majeure clause is, the better uh, listing out all these different events. But again, these things have been litigated so heavily that, um, you know, you. You're, you can go and look up, you know, what is a force majeure event, um, but you're going to want to list out everything that you think might occur on the job. Um, and now the pandemic language has just been, um, you know, in every single contract that we're seeing now, whereas before no one really thought about it. Um, you know, there might be some language in your clause that said, oh, well, if we shut down, you know, because of uh, war or something like that, you know, that, that language might be in there, but, you know, I hadn't really seen much pandemic language, uh, or disease language up until uh, now. You know, talk about, and we'll, we'll end here, uh, talk about the effect that the pandemic had on the ability for companies to be able to comply with their construction contracts. Yeah, it created a couple different issues. Um, well, first of all, construction was lucky because it was deemed an essential business, um, at least in Texas. Uh, God bless Texas. 
And so construction kept going the whole time. The problem was the supply chain became extremely disrupted um, and laborers were difficult to find because they were once sick. Uh, but also, you know, everybody was kind of in a panic and people were going back home and they were, um, you know, not wanting to work and um, we were getting, you know, stimulus checks and all that kind of stuff. And so that those were the main problems. I will say, you know, it was convenient for the construction industry that, uh, you know, these these industries, the construction industry never stopped. It never just came to a complete halt. Um, but it was extremely difficult to get materials on time and the materials were so expensive um, because of the uh, difficulty in getting things transported and it still is. I mean, it's even, maybe even worse now, um, but those were the major, major impacts were just the cost of materials were driving up the contract prices. And then you'd see these um, projects that were halfway done in 2020 and they have a bid or an estimate for, you know, what they think it's going to cost or a lump sum contract. Um, well, now all of a sudden it's going to cost them twice as much as what they thought it was when they entered the contract. Um, and so those have all been heavily litigated. And, you know, I think the, the main out for, for the owners and developers um, or the build and uh, the people building the projects is, well, let me see if I can just find somebody else to sell this to. <laughs> just that, just you know, move that, this off. Yeah, that ties into the you know the real estate market just going crazy right now too. But that's what exactly. we've seen a lot. It's just people trying to terminate contracts because it's so expensive to finish these jobs that were contracted for in 2019, and they want to sell it to somebody else for way more money than they originally were selling it to this uh, first buyer. Sure. Well, buddy, I think that's a good spot for us to wrap it up for today. Uh, Thomas, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. I think we learned a lot. I think this served as a really good kind of just dipping the toe into the water podcast for our audience. I think like most complicated areas, you know, like when we discussed oil and gas, when we discussed bankruptcy, now when we're discussing construction law, these are complicated issues that, uh, that require usually a great deal of expertise to be able to navigate effectively. And so, you know, I think step one, uh, like we always recommend is get yourself a good lawyer to look over these contracts, help you out with it, you know, spend $10 on the front end rather than a hundred dollars on the back end, uh, when it's already too late. And so, you know, I think you've given us a good sense of sort of the issues that may arise, some of the things that our audience needs to be aware of and looking out for. But most importantly, the best thing that you can do for yourself as an owner or even a contractor or a sub is to get yourself good representation. And so, you know, Thomas, you're certainly somebody that I would recommend to anybody who's got a construction project on. So thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Absolutely. So this has been Clinton Butler, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. Uh, on our next episode, we're going to be discussing the different types of construction defect litigation issues that, uh, that may arise. And our guest in that episode will be Ian McClinn, who uh, will be joined by uh, what is the inevitability of insurance coverage. And so our insurance expert, uh, Steve Walraven, will be joining uh, Ian and I to discuss defect cases. 
And so thank you all very much for joining us on the Langley Act podcast series for Construction Law in Texas. I'll look forward to talking with you next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600.